Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. We're so glad that you're here today. Our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, is ready to begin a brand new series. So let's open our Bibles and learn about the significance of curses and blessings. The Bible is a book of curses and blessings. As we shall see, the entire universe is under a curse because of Adam's sin. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68, the Lord, through Moses, speaks of the promise of curses for disobedience. Verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Many of these curses are called futility curses. Men's labor and hard work will be futile. God will guarantee it. Verses 38 and 39 state, Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, and thou shalt gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. In verses 49 and 50 we read, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. The word curse, as used in these contexts, means an evil and painful judgment coming upon those so cursed because of their disobedience. The list in Deuteronomy 28 is quite extensive. In verses 23 and 24, the metaphors of a bronze sky and an iron earth underscore the severity of the drought referred to in verse 22. The scene is one of absolute hopelessness. Verse 25 indicates that disobeying God's covenant would bring such devastation to Israel that the nations would no longer be in awe of her. What should have produced admiration and praise would become so disfigured as to elicit nothing but disgust and revulsion. In verse 27, we're told that just as the exodus of Israel from Egypt was the sign of God's favor, their covenant rebellion would initiate a kind of reversal of the exodus. They would experience the very boils of Egypt along with a host of other afflictions reminiscent of the ten plagues upon Egypt. Verse 33 speaks about people they do not know, referring to foreign invasion against Israel, something that occurred many times in the centuries that followed, notably in the days of the judges, then later in the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. Verse 48 speaks of an iron yoke, a metaphor of bondage so severe that it is inescapable. Prisoners of war were harnessed in yokes to prevent them from escaping and to shame them. In Leviticus 26, there is likewise a pronouncement of curses upon disobedient Israel, but the curses are not final. In verses 44 and 45, we read, And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord." Divine love cancels even the most horrific curses, as we shall see. Though many pastors and commentators don't acknowledge that fact, the whole human race is under a curse. 
Galatians 3.13 and 14 explains, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In these two verses, we have the sum total of this presentation, Curses and Blessings. In Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul specifically connects the crucifixion with the divine curse. The death of Christ secured our redemption from the curse because Jesus became literally a curse on man's behalf. Paul connects it to Deuteronomy 21.23. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. There are many features of the crucifixion which show that the death of Christ was the realization of a curse. Jesus' death, for example, was a violent death. The ancient curses of the ancient Semitic Near East specified that the person transgressing the terms of the agreement should die violently. The piercing of his body contributed to the violent nature of Christ's death. Psalm 22 verse 16 tells us, They pierced my hands and my feet. The vassal treaties of the Assyrian king Esarhaddon warned of the penalty for violating the conditions of the treaty. Quote, Just as the honeycomb is pierced through and through with holes, so may holes be pierced through and through in your flesh. The idea of one bearing the curse penalties for others is also found in the literature of the ancient Near East. Because King David was party to God's covenant, the idea of the king standing before God in the place of the people whom he represents is not at all out of keeping with the biblical data. The king and the people are regarded as a unity, and he acts representatively before God. When Jesus Christ received the penalty of the broken covenant, all the curses that were to be poured out on the one who violated the covenant were poured out on him. The ancient texts found in the Qumran caves containing the Dead Sea Scrolls show how pervasive the redemptive curse theme was in the early years of the New Testament era. The Qumran covenanters believed that they were the products of a fulfilled new covenant. As Moses was involved in the contracting of the Sinaitic covenant, so was the teacher of righteousness as the mediator of this new covenant. Various works produced by the Qumran sect provided examples of curses threatened for breach of covenant. In one of the scrolls, there is an extensive listing of curse pronouncements, reminiscent of the curses in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. There is a significant parallel between Christ and Moses, who declared himself willing to die in the place of the covenant-breaking Israelites, as explained in Exodus 32:32. In making a god of gold for themselves, the Israelites sinned in breaking the Lord's covenant, and if the Lord had accepted his plea, Moses would have received the punishment due to the people of Israel for their infidelity to the covenant. Moses' suffering would have then been a substitutionary penalty for transgression of the covenant. There are other features of the covenant curse that line up with the death of Jesus Christ in our place. The scorn and ridicule which Christ experienced is suggestive of the cursed nature of his death. He was reviled, 1 Peter 2.23, insulted by both the crowds and those who were crucified with him, Mark 15.31 and 32, and publicly accused of crimes which he had not committed, Luke 23, verses 1 through 5. In the world of the Old Testament, public humiliation was promised for covenant breakers. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah under indictment for breach of covenant, Jeremiah 11, 1 through 5, 
were to become a horror, a hissing, and a curse, and will be a reproach among all the nations to which the Lord will drive them. Jeremiah 29:18. Even Edom and Babylon, who are likewise under a curse, will be publicly degraded. Jeremiah 9:13 and Jeremiah 50, verse 13. Thorns and thistles have a long history as symbols of the divine curse. Prior to the fall, man was not to be idle, but was to work, cultivating and keeping the Garden of Eden. Man found fulfillment and satisfaction in his work. But subsequent to the fall, God turned the environment against man as a curse enactment. Man's work would now become laborious toil, for it would be impeded by the growth of thorns and thistles, Genesis 3:17 through 19. The cosmic curse was particularized in individual acts of divine judgment upon covenant breakers. Such judgment was often spoken of in terms of thorns and thistles, as we see in Hosea 2, 5, and 6, and also chapter 9, verse 6, and in Isaiah 32, 12, and 13. The vassal treaties of Esarhaddon cursed the treaty breaker with the wearing of slit shoes on thorny ground. Hence, the removal of the curse means that, in the words of Isaiah 55:13, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. Jesus' thirst on the cross, as indicated in John 19:28, can also be viewed as a curse reenactment. In much of the treaty and legal oath-sworn materials of the ancient Near East, there is the promise of a curse that promised the transgressor would faint from thirst. In the treaty between Ashenarari V of Assyria and Mati-Elu of Orpad, drought is one of the many curses pronounced upon the people of the leader who did not keep his part of the covenant. We read, quote, May they be deprived of Adad's thunder, so that rain be denied them. Let dust be their food, pitch their ointment, donkeys urine their drink, rushes for their clothing, close quotes. In the Hebrew Scriptures, drought and the consequent thirst is associated with sin against God, as in 1 Kings 8, verse 35. The curses of Deuteronomy 28 promise an abundance of rain for the obedient, verse 12, and prolonged drought for the disobedient, verses 23 and 24. The blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, according to Psalm 1, verse 2. According to verse 3, he will prosper as a well-watered tree, but the wicked have no such promise, verses 5 and 6. At a time when Baal worship threatened to push the worship of the God of Israel into seeming extinction, Elijah spoke to King Ahab and said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word, 1 Kings 17, 1. We should also mention that the darkness that accompanied the death of Christ, Luke 23:44 and 45, is also emblematic of the divine curse. The day of the Lord is frequently characterized in Scripture as a day of deep darkness. Joel 2, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, Amos 5, 18 through 20. Jesus Christ was cursed in our place and received our penalty for being under the curse so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The thought is, the blessing of Abraham could not come to the Gentiles unless the curse were removed from us and we were, so to speak, uncursed. Christ has borne the curse for us, both the Adamic curse and the Mosaic curse. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, the universe and everything in it came under a curse. The Lord spoke to the serpent and said, 
Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Genesis 3.14. In Genesis 3.17, God spoke to Adam and said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. The word translated ground in the previous quotation is the word for earth. Hence, the whole earth is under a curse. Romans chapter 8 describes this very effectively and in a very startling way. Verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The curse has affected the whole creation, and the creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth. Adam's fall has had a cosmic effect on the creation. The words groaning and travailing bring to mind a young Christian woman in our prayer group on the mission field who went into labor. Some of the ladies took her into another room, and I could hear her suffering. It made everyone very sad. It must have been very difficult for her. How thankful we can be for modern hospitals and birthing centers. Obviously, not every aspect of the curse has been removed, even for Christians. Christian women experience labor pains as well as non-Christian women. In Genesis 3.16, God said to Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Christian farmers experience thorns and thistles in their farms. Farming can be hard work, even for Christian farmers. In Genesis 3.18, God said to Adam, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. There is evidently an eschatological fulfillment for the blessings promised to God's people. Healing is in the atonement, but not everything in the atonement is fulfilled upon the moment of salvation. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13:11, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. In 1 Timothy 5:23, we see that Timothy had digestive problems and was told to take a little wine. Not an endorsement of alcoholic beverages for recreational use, but an endorsement of medication. Furthermore, in Philippians 2, 26 and 27, Paul writes of Epaphroditus, who was, quote, full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Were both Timothy and Epaphroditus weak Christians lacking faith to be healed? We all know Christians who were men and women of exemplary faith who have battled cancer and other illnesses, some of whom have died. I find it hard to believe that they had health problems because their Christianity was substandard and they suffered because they did not believe that healing was theirs only to be claimed. So humanity is under the Adamic curse and humanity is also under the Mosaic curse. Many understand how all humanity can be under the Adamic curse. Romans 5 makes that very clear. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all of sin. But how can all humanity be under the Mosaic curse? Moses was Israel's lawgiver and gave the law to Israel. How can all of humanity be under a curse for a violated Jewish law? 
The answer is that while there are ceremonial and Jewish elements, there are also eternal moral requirements in the Mosaic Law, namely the Ten Commandments, that we have all violated and are being held accountable. The moral law found in the Ten Commandments was not new. It was simply codified and summarized in the Mosaic Law, but that moral law existed even before the time of Moses. A good example of this is the case of Abraham and the king of Gerar, Abimelech. In Genesis 20, verse 2, we read, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But when Abimelech found that he had taken Abraham's wife, he acknowledged such was very wrong. Verse 9. As we have seen, there are curses for disobedience. We don't want to forget, however, that there are great blessings for obedience. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, we read that those who are obedient to the stipulations of God's covenant will be blessed in their fields and their families. Their fruit baskets and bread baskets will be full. Israel will loan to foreign nations, but Israel will never need to borrow from them. But we may ask, if blessing comes to me on the basis of my righteousness, I will never be blessed because I am unrighteous. Even my repentance needs to be repented of. The answer is given in Romans, which underscores the necessity of obedience, but not my obedience or the obedience of any sinner. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The one here, of course, is Jesus Christ. Those who believe on Jesus Christ have the perfect obedience of Christ imputed to them, This is why the idea that there are many ways to be saved is ridiculous, at least from the biblical point of view. The righteousness of Muhammad could save no one. Muhammad himself admitted that he was not on occasion righteous. Only Jesus Christ was without sin. Only faith in Jesus Christ can bring eternal salvation because only Jesus Christ could meet the perfect demands of God the Father. In the scripture, there are three levels of imputation. The sin and guilt of Adam is imputed to the human race. Secondly, the sin of the human race is imputed to Jesus Christ for those who believe in him. And thirdly, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to those who believe in him. And so those who believe that if they try hard enough to be good, and if they get in alignment with some religion, as long as they are sincere, God will save them. That teaching did not come from God but from Satan, who is working hard to populate hell with sincere people who are sincerely wrong. I know this is not a popular idea because it is not politically correct. But here are two things to remember about political correctness. Number one, it will lead to the eternal doom of individuals. And number two, it will destroy a nation as we see in America at the present time. So we thank God for the obedience of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He was cursed on our behalf, and he was obedient on our behalf. His act of obedience refers to the fact that Jesus Christ perfectly kept the law of God throughout his entire life. The passive obedience of Jesus is the state of ongoing surrender that says, as is articulated in Luke 22, 42, not my will, but thine be done. Dr. Spargimino will continue this series on curses and blessings next time. If you'd like a copy of this series, call 1-800-652-1144 or visit our website, swrc.com. 
Staff evangelist James Collins is here to talk about a burdensome stone from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3, with author Jim Fletcher. The Bible says in Zechariah 12:3, And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. A little over 2,500 years ago, the prophet Zechariah predicted that at the end of this age, Israel would become more and more hated. And we certainly see that happening in the news today. Zechariah also said that Jerusalem would become a burdensome stone to the whole world, and we certainly see that developing. On the phone with me is Jim Fletcher. Jim is an author and speaker who specializes in Bible prophecy and co-wrote a book titled The Last War, which gives a fantastic history of the current state of unrest in the Middle East. Jim, how did you come to be an expert on Israel? I read somewhere that it started when you made your first trip there in the 1990s. That's right. I was actually David Lewis's book editor for many years. In 1998, he had the idea for this book, and he surprised me one day, and he said, do you want to go with me to Israel and help me do the interviews? And I said, sure. Like everybody else that goes, especially for a Christian, it was life-changing for me. It was really then that I started getting deeply into pro-Israel activism and Bible prophecy and that sort of thing, seeing the place for myself, interviewing people with David that I would never otherwise have had the opportunity to meet. Amazing experience. Jerusalem has become a burdensome stone to the whole world. The Vatican wants the city under its control. The United Nations wants it to be internationalized. It seems that the United States is determined to divide it between the Palestinians and the Jews. But the Palestinians want all of it, and Israel says they'll never surrender any of it. It's very complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated and complex from a human standpoint. I think from a biblical standpoint, it's pretty simple and straightforward. The land is given to the Jews in a covenant by the Lord, an unconditional covenant. But that doesn't play well with modern diplomats and politicians. So that's where the flies in the ointment. There's been conflict, though, in Israel since they captured Jerusalem in 1967. They took in what we, of course, would describe the defensive war. They were facing an existential threat, which very few countries ever face. Israel faces an existential threat really every day because the country's so small and they're surrounded by enemies. And so they took the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. And that's still sending shockwaves to the Middle East. They control the territory for a good bit. Now, a lot of people don't realize that under the Oslo Agreement, Israel has given back 91% of the territory. Most of that, of course, being the Sinai. But they have given back a good chunk of territory that they never get credit for. And the international community, whether it's the media, politicians, or diplomats, will never give Israel any credit until they cease to exist, which I believe won't be the case. Well, I certainly believe that Israel should be able to have control over their own capital. But as you say, the rest of the world doesn't seem to agree with that. Isn't that why on December 6, 2017, when President Trump made the proclamation to move the American embassy and recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, the Arab world was outraged? Absolutely. Notice that there's always the threat that the so-called Arab street will rise up and will ignite World War III if America made some kind of major move like that. Previous presidents pledged to move the embassy. And I'm just going to tell you what I think. I think those previous presidents lied. Trump didn't lie. He kept his promise. And yet when he moved the embassy, notice nothing really happened. Nobody went to war. Their bluffing and saber-rattling was for nothing. And it was really a historic moment. So I think a lot of those kinds of predictions 
usually don't pan out, but it certainly was a momentous move. The nation of Israel is smaller than the state of New Jersey. Why is that such a focus of the world? I mean, anytime anything happens in Jerusalem, it's in the headlines all over the world the next day. Why is that? I really think Dave Hunt answered that question one time in the most profound way. He said that it's because God said so. God says repeatedly, particularly in the last four chapters of Zechariah, the Lord very clearly says that Jerusalem in the very end will be a flashpoint that the nations will finally sort of lose their minds and be fed up with Israel and attack. It's such a small country, as you said, why would the world be obsessed with the status of Jerusalem so long as the Jews have sovereignty there? The only rational explanation is because Scripture said it would be this way. I challenge somebody to find a political reason for it, really. If not for the biblical proclamations, the status of Jerusalem would probably been settled a long time ago. Well, now, much of the conflict that happens there has to do with control of the Temple Mount. What is the Temple Mount, and why is it so important? The Temple Mount is a 35-acre compound, really, on the eastern edge of Jerusalem's old city. It's surrounded by ancient walls. The western wall is, I think, the last retaining wall that was built in Roman times. It is where the two ancient Jewish temples stood, now completely gone, also in fulfillment of prophecy. But now, of course, the Muslim Dome of the Rock is there, and then also the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was in the news in a big way in the last month. And so certainly a flashpoint between Muslims and Jews and Christians. The Muslims don't like the fact that the Israeli flag flies over the Temple Mount, even though the Palestinians have sort of been given the keys to it in certain ways. But it remains a problem. You know, Israel tried to give even that away 20 years ago under Ehud Barak, and Arafat walked away. So the idea that Israel is being intransigent is really a lot. Isn't it true that the Romans came up with the term Palestinian and that historically there's no such thing as a Palestinian state? Just who are the Palestinians? That is all correct. In the 2nd century A.D., the Romans expelled finally the majority of the Jews that were in the city and in the land, and the Roman emperor renamed it Palestina really as just a way to erase Jewish history. And so it remained a regional name, Palestine, for 1900 years. From the 7th century on, when the Muslims could have made it the capital of a state, they never made a move to do so. It was only when Israel recaptured the city in 1967 and established sovereignty that it's been a big deal to the international community. Isn't there already a Palestinian state? Didn't the British give land that was promised to Israel to make Jordan? That is also correct. Originally, the British mandate, they were going to establish the Jewish state, which would have been what is there now, but also the West Bank and a good part of what is Jordan today. And then in the end, after a couple of negotiations, they carved even that up. So the original Palestine has been sliced more than in half, and that is what on the west side is what the Israelis control. And in the country of Transjordan, was established in 1947, a year before Israel. So people forget that originally today's country of Israel and Jordan was intended to be the Jewish state. Jim, thank you for being with me today. Is the battle against terrorism a prelude to the last war? The book, The Last War, The Failure of the Peace Process and the Coming Battle for Jerusalem is our featured resource today. In this in-depth study, the reader will learn little reported facts about the peace process and the people involved. 
and will be able to see clearly that the latest confrontations are a prelude to a devastating conclusion. Get your copy of The Last War for a gift of $10 or more. Call 1-800-652-1144 or order online swrc.com. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.